Happy New Year. Fun to be in the 20s, celebrating the 20s. Do you guys remember this? I was born in the 70s, and I lived in the 80s and 90s, and then we went to these non-years, the zeros, the teens, but now we get to be back in a decade, the 20s. It's fun. It's exciting to see what's going to happen in the 20s. Well, as you know, or maybe you don't know, but we as a church every year start with the word of the year, and so 2019, our word of the year was joy. And we celebrated joy all year for the celebration of making it 10 years as a faith community church. And now today you're wondering, no balloon drop happening. What could possibly be the word of the year this year? Well, we need a word this year, 2020, that has deep resonance with having a past and having a foundation. But also something that we're looking forward to as well, that we keep looking out. We need a deep word that helps us think about all the momentum God has been building year after year and also keep going, looking out for more. So our word for 2020 is intention, intention. You know, we started out with the word intentionality, but that had too many syllables. And then we thought about intentional I think that was the word of the year, like, in year three or four. So we couldn't go with that again. So intention is our word, and it's our intention to continue to follow God in the way of Jesus Christ and all of us becoming more and more passionate, devoted followers of Christ. Intention is actually a very deep word. It has a great meaning. And, you know, at a basic level, your intention is something you plan to do, something you want to do. And so maybe in your conscious level of thinking, you might say in your conscious intention, oh, I I want to, I intend to stay at my job five more years. And so that might be something you're thinking about. But there's also this deeper down subconscious, unconscious level, also where there's intention that might be forming and informing that conscious intention. And you might at that unconscious level think, oh, I'm I want to have some stability in my life. I want to produce stability. Or I want to stick it out. You know, I want to see something through and not just like get going and then stop. I want to see something through. Those might be deeper things in your beliefs and your values that come up and form your conscious intentions. So one big challenge with this word intention is that intention comes at us from many different ways. Just as I said, you know, you have your conscious level of thinking intention where you have thoughts and ideas and commitments that you're making and wanting to do. And then also this second level, this unconscious level in intention where you have beliefs and values and determination and something that keeps you going. And you can think about those two in conflict, right? Like I can say, oh, my intention is to get in shape in 2020 and be like I was when I was 20. Well, That might be in conflict with my deeper subconscious that just wants to sit around. And I don't know. Those are intention. Also, third, we have these outside forces of intention. These outside things. All the people in your life who have their intentions for you, and they want you to do something. They have plans for you. Maybe you can think about social media influencing you or advertising and business saying, hey, buy my thing. We want you to want what we have. So all these things are forces coming at us. And finally, in this short list of just a few options of intention, we have God's intention. 
yet another force in our life and in this world, that God has plans and purposes. God is moving things in his way forward. He has intention. And the beautiful thing is that God invites us to participate with him in his intentions, into his plans and purposes. Well, as you're observing, the tension and the conflict between all this intention, um, I want to add a sub-word to our word of the year. I think this is fair to do, um, to have intention as the word of the year, and then a pun, intention. See? See how that works? That's the sub-word, intention. Because all of these forces in our lives are in tension with each other. And we have to somehow hold that tension. We have to work it out. We can't just like give up and go to the easy thing. We have to stick with it and figure things out and stay and hold tension. So our intention as a church is to sometimes hold the tension required to follow God and to take his intention into our lives. Well, in choosing intention for the word, my hope is that um, we are putting God's intention into our life. And that probably begins at a conscious level of bringing God into my mind and my thoughts and filling my thoughts with, what does God want? What does God intend? What are God's plans and purposes and ways that I can follow him into those things? So filling my mind and thoughts with God's intention And then when there's things that are in conflict with each other and I don't know what to do, hopefully it's that place of tension where I can then turn to God because I've been filling my mind and my thoughts with God and his intentions. I seek him for guidance and wisdom into those things. And hopefully, as it fills my mind, it seeps down into my soul and it moves me in my intentions to be in union with God and his intentions. That's the hope. That's the goal. And then, when all these outside intentions come at me, I can either absorb them or just gently deflect them because I am standing on the solid intention of God, and that is my source. And that gives me guidance for all the other things that come at me and what I'm going to do in my choices moving forward. So hopefully, this is the process, bringing God's intention into my mind, letting it inform my depths of my soul, and through that, hopefully, I'm becoming more and more a passionate, devoted follower of Christ. 2020, starting a new sermon series today. Jonah, Old Testament book of Jonah, four chapters, so in the next four weeks, we're going to look at one chapter each week. And intention actually is a very deep theme in the book of Jonah, and it's very fascinating. And Jonah, of course, is best known for the big fish in the story. Maybe already you're feeling the tension of big fish. I don't know if I believe that. And you have to figure that tension out in this next month. But also, this book of Jonah is this great favorite children's story that kids love, and they can just easily grasp the basic message of don't run away from God. But I hope in the next few weeks we go deeper into the theme of this book and find some more of the adult theme as we figure out this conflict between Jonah's intention and God's intention. 
So Jonah, it's a short little book. It's one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. So this morning, I'd like to begin simply by reading chapter 1 and unpacking some of the detail in that story. So to begin with, verse 1, chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. That's all we need to know. Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, you might be thinking, I don't know who Jonah is, but the first readers, they read that and they're like, oh, Jonah. They knew who he was because he was a famous prophet. They knew who he was and they knew something more about him, who he really was. So, to get some of this background, let's do a quick review of Israel history. Because Jonah was a prophet under the king Jeroboam II. So hold on to that. So, quick Israel history. God's forming this people that would be his very own. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. They're in slavery in Egypt. God releases them, frees them, forms them in the desert for 40 years to be his people. And then later they want to have a king. Be like everybody else. So God gives them Saul their first king, and replaces Saul with David, and then David's son Solomon, and then things start falling apart. The kingdom, the 12 tribes, breaks up. Now we have the kingdom of Israel, which is 10 tribes of Israel, and two tribes of Judah. So it's split. They're divided. They're separate. They're actually going to war with each other at times. And King Jeroboam II is king of the 10 tribes of Israel. And it says about him, like many of those kings of Israel, the ten tribes, Jeroboam II did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Jeroboam II did not bring the people back to following God. Instead, everybody knows Jeroboam II, his whole mission was a nationalistic mission of increasing the boundaries of their kingdom and establishing the borders and taking in more land. Jonah is the prophet for Jeroboam II. And his mission, nationalistic mission, establishing them as a people. So here we have God's prophet who is moderately interested in following God's ways and massively interested in establishing the kingdom of Israel. All right, that's Jonah. Verse 2, God's instruction. God says to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And as you read that, maybe you're already thinking what everybody's thinking. Are you kidding me? Is God kidding? Is this a joke? Go to Nineveh? Nineveh is, is our mortal enemy. They're our oppressor. They're awful. They're like the thing that we're totally against. And, I mean, Nineveh, are you kidding, God? God, you never send a prophet elsewhere. Like, Jonah would say to you, the prophets, they're for God's people. They bring God's word, the special words of God, only to God's people. We don't go to other nations and tell them things. That's not the prophet's job. Jonah is confused. What is going on? Is this a joke? I mean, truly, Nineveh, capital city of Assyria. Assyria, 
goes down in the history books as one of the most cruel, awful, terrible empires in history. Cruel. And here God, God says to Jonah, hey, go over to them and tell them, guys, your, your wickedness, it's getting to be too much. Stop it. Right? That's what God wants to happen. And some have compared this in more recent history, which is really fascinating to have these comparisons and to bring ourselves into this. Is This is like God saying to a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, and saying, hey, go to Nazi Berlin and tell Hitler to repent. That's how serious going to the Assyrians was. So here we start. First two verses, we have a sketchy prophet who's way more interested in nationalism than in God. And then we have God making this ridiculous request to go to these awful people so that they would repent and receive God's forgiveness and receive God's love. I mean, how crazy is that? In response, Jonah. But Jonah runs away from the Lord. And headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Why does Jonah run away? Why does Jonah run away? I mean, at the most maybe basic level, you might think, oh, Jonah's afraid. He's afraid. And legitimately, I mean, the thing that the Assyrian Empire does to people is that they tie them up, skin them alive, and hang their skin on the walls of their city. Legitimately, Jonah would be afraid. But I think there's something more in this. And actually, Jonah gives us a little bit of an insight into why he ran away ahead in chapter 4. So we're going to jump to chapter 4. This is what Jonah reports to God. Jonah says, Isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was still at home, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Do you hear that word forestall? Jonah wants to forestall God, forgiving and restoring these people. He wants to prevent it. So he thinks that if he can get away, then they won't get the message. And if they don't get the message, they'll just keep going as normal, and then God will crush them. That's what he's hoping for. And Jonah hates the Assyrians so much that he's going to run away so that they will not hear this message from God to repent. Because he totally does not want them to receive God's love and forgiveness and to move forward with God. God's intention is in conflict with Jonah's intention. You know, Jonah's intention, he wants punishment for these people. They're his enemy. God, you're on our side. Put them down. Jonah wants to receive all the mercy of God, and he wants for them have all the judgment of God and the justice of God. 
Jonah wants to be God's people who God loves and cares for and to keep others out. What does God want? God wants shalom, universal peace and flourishing for all people. God wants for even these Ninevites to come into his way and to live life loving your neighbor, knowing God and being in a relationship, moving forward in this peace and flourishing. God wants his goodness to flow out to all people. God's intention, Jonah's intention, in conflict with each other. So Jonah runs away. Verse 4 picks up. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and, sent, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to their, his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. It seems kind of silly to run away from God. It seems kind of silly, but it's so true. And it's true for us as well. It's interesting is we, in our own, like, trying to get away from God, how we, in our thinking, we try to think, oh, God doesn't see all that's happening, so I can cheat and get away with it. Or we might think, oh, God, you're asking me to do something that's, that's useless. Why would I love somebody and have no return on that love? You know, it's like throwing away my love to just love somebody and then them not give me a return on that investment. Or maybe you think about a different scenario where you think, oh, God doesn't care. So if God doesn't care, I need to take control of this situation. I need to take action for me to get things done. Or maybe God doesn't care, so I can do whatever I want. He doesn't care. He's not watching me. In all these kinds of ways, we can also run away from God, thinking we're running away from God. But God pursues God comes after. And it's interesting that Jonah is really messy. And the city of Nineveh, super messy. And us, also super messy. And yet, God keeps coming after Jonah and Nineveh and us. And here for Jonah, God sends a storm a storm so violent that these seasoned sailors are even afraid. And what is Jonah doing? He's sleeping. Really? He's sleeping? How do you sleep? Hugh Martin once wrote that this was a sleep of sorrow. Sleep of sorrow. That Jonah was so self-absorbed and selfish, he was so exhausted from the energy of his anger and his anxiety, and his grief, and all that stuff, he's just wiped out. And now he's in a sleep of sorrow. Interestingly, there is a parallel between 
this sleep of sorrow for Jonah, and Jesus, who also was once sleeping on a boat that was in a huge storm. And the people also had to come to him to wake him up. We're not going to dig into those connections today, but isn't this interesting to think that this story of Jonah is a story that Jesus read. It's a story that informed Jesus. He knew it, and he even referred to it in his own life. Verse 7. Then the sailors, oh, the sailors, the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? You know, what kind of work do you do? You know, where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Jonah answers, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? And they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Notice all those questions the sailors are asking. Remember, there's a huge storm going on, and they are pausing to gather information to ask some questions. And here's Jonah. Jonah's running away. He's trying to hide. He's closing down. And the, the sailors are opening up. You know, here's Jonah. He's supposed to be the morally responsible prophet of God. He's the one we expect to do some things. But he isn't showing up. It's the sailors. The sailors who are the pagans, you know, the morally irresponsible people, the people that Jonah's running away from. Here, they are showing up in admirable ways. They're the ones who have outstanding character. They're the ones who are impressive in what they do and how they conduct themselves. In this first chapter of Jonah, we see some contrasts between Jonah and the sailors. Just look at a few of these. Just think about Jonah, who's from the people of God, and those sailors, racially different pagans. They're the other. Jonah, he sleeps. He checks out. The sailors, they're afraid. And they're spiritually aware enough that they know this storm must have some kind of divine origin. Jonah, he's absorbed in his own problems. Sailors, they are working for the common good of all the people on the ship. They are there working for everyone, trying to save everyone. Jonah, the prophet of God, does not pray. Who's praying? The sailors. The sailors. And they are calling on Jonah. Jonah, pray to your God. Jonah, he's running away from God. But those sailors, they are ready to call on Jonah's God. Jonah, he's being selfish. The sailors, they're being admirable. Tim Keller observes that God sent his prophet to Nineveh, to the pagans, to point them to God. 
But here we have the pagans pointing God's prophet to God. The sailors are the ones who are setting the example in the story. They are reflecting more of God's goodness, care, his intention for all people in common good. Verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? He says, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. Here, again, these sailors are remarkable. They cast lots, and they determine, you're the problem, but they don't turn to violence and immediately throw them overboard. They, they stall. In fact, they try to row back. They try harder. They have more respect for human life than God's prophet. It says, But they could not row back, for the sea grew even wilder than before, which is so great that God's kind of saying to the sailors, Hey, guys, you're trying your best, and I appreciate it. But this isn't about you. I've got something bigger going on here. So bigger storm, settle down, throw them in. And so then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Again, the sailors are turning to God. The sailors are turning to God. They care more about God. They care more about human life. They care about this one person more than Jonah, God's prophet, cared about the 120,000 people in Nineveh that he wanted God to crush. The sailors. Finally, after stalling and really considering while the storm is getting crazy, verse 15, they then took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. God took care of the sailors. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord. They made vows to him. Are you kidding me? The pagan sailors are making sacrifices to the Lord. They're making commitments to the Lord. They are calling out to God. And what is God's prophet doing? He's unwilling to let go of his own intentions. He's unwilling to let go of his nationalism. He's unwilling to embrace the other. He's unwilling to repent and turn to his own God. The last verse, chapter 1, says, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And that is where we will leave Jonah until next week. <laughs> because Jonah is messy, and God is coming after him. Nineveh, super messy. God is coming after them. Us, we are messy. God is coming after us. So as you are 
sitting, looking out at a new year ahead, what are your intentions? What are your intentions? And are your intentions in conflict with God's intentions? What values, beliefs, commitments do you have and hold on to that don't have their source in God, but have a source somewhere else? Maybe you have already chosen your word for the year for yourself. But if you have not, maybe you could consider using intention as your word of the year. And go on this spiritual journey of bringing your intentions into God's intentions by bringing God's intentions so much into you that you are formed and shaped by what God wants, where he's going, his purposes and plans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so glad that you come after us wherever we're at, in whatever messy ways we are messy. And you love us, you pursue us. And I pray that this year, 2020, would be a year of bringing your intention into our lives and living it out no matter if we can see how your purposes will play out, no matter if there is a clear return on investment for what we do, we will simply follow you. And if you call us to go to Nineveh, that we would go and go with you and follow you there. Pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.